welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. All right, Michael, take us away. Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. This is Father Mike. Father John. And we have a very, 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 very special guest. A very, very, very reverend That's special right. guest, right? He's back no, in most, Denver. Hey, most reverend? Most reverend? Most reverend. Super reverend? We have uh, Bishop Andrew Cousins here with us, so welcome, Bishop. Back to Denver. Thank you. It's great to be here. First time in 12-plus years that we've ever had a bishop on the podcast. How is about it? that? I don't think we've ever had one. First time. Wow. I think I was on it, but it was before I was a bishop. Okay. Okay, yeah. You were on as father, father Cousins. Years ago. And you're back. Yeah. But you, have you ever been grilled by Father Mike during banter is the question. No. Okay. I think our podcast is like kind of embarrassing enough that we don't have, we definitely don't have bishops volunteering and no, calling us and asking to be on the Every show. once in a while, we have our bishop calling us to say, hey, knock it off or, yeah. you know, please edit better. Yeah, I don't or, think we're... So uh, how about this? You are, aren't you, you grew up in Denver. I'm a Denver native. Well, I, I was born in Connecticut, but I grew up in Denver. Yep. Yeah, and that's why you talk about skiing, how much you love it, how much you want to be here have skiing you ski- with have us you in the next couple of days. <laughs> we were telling to. him the snow's good. We wish we could keep him here a little longer. Yeah, I misplanned that. But we, uh, I had a chance to ski uh, with Bishop and some of his family and Father Brady uh, last year, and, man, it was a blast. We skied Vail, and you guys were just, the whole family just hammers. Just yeah? boom, just every Are you one. bumps? Are you big, big, big mountain? Little Patter, bit of both. steep and deep? A little, little, bit of, little bit of everything. We like the speed. Yeah. They're all big, and so it's hard for me to keep up with them, but they like the speed. Oh, yeah, your brother-in-law, Tim, he's a big man. Yeah. yeah. They were just, it was a blast. So, so, so much fun. So you are bishop in Crookston, way up north Minnesota, northwest Minnesota. Yep. The northernmost diocese in the continental United States. Is it? Yes. Wow. Lake, Lake of the Woods, that, that little uh, bump in the middle of the country, that's called the Northwest Angle, and that's in my diocese. Wow. Do you have a corner of the lake? I do. I have a big, pretty darn big corner of Lake of the Woods, one of the largest lakes in the country. Oh. And do you have, like, hermits out there? Are there kind of recluse? Recluse? <laughs> what is the plural for recluse? Rec- recli? I think <laughs> if there was an actual hermit who was a Catholic, I would know about it. Okay. So I don't think so, but we do have, you know, there are people living off the grid, if that's what you're asking. That's what <laughs> I'm asking. If they're Catholic, I guess. That's the question. His diocese is also home to, sorry, this is an old Mike, um, Bemidji State Beavers, Mary yes. Nepple, my mom's alma mater. Is she from there? Go Beavers. No, okay. she's from Farmington, but. Now, uh, my people are from uh, southern part. St. Peter, my mom went to Gustavus Adolphus. Nice. And my dad at uh, Mankato State. Yeah, we're kind so of all we're opposites. Minnesotans. We're, I say that because yeah, we we're have, Minnesotans. We have Minnesota roots that came to Denver, and you have Denver roots that yeah, came to Minnesota. Right. So, will you tell us a little bit about your story, being from Denver, but how you ended up? And yeah, I, I grew up in Denver. Um, went to Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas, and then Laura at Labora. Yeah, and then through there, I became a uh, a missionary with Net Ministries, the National Evangelization Teams. So after college, I did a year with that, and that was actually the irony is that was my first time in the Crookston Diocese. I was there as a missionary That's right, you mentioned that in 1991. So I was in a bunch of the parishes, put on retreats for high school kids 30 years ago. Then uh, ended up settling in the Twin Cities, joined the Companions of Christ there, which was a fledgling group at that time. In fact, I was one of the founders at that time. And then uh, um, spent you know 25 years as a priest in the Twin Cities, um, but I became... Uh, auxiliary bishop nine years ago 
And then after eight years as an auxiliary bishop in the Twin Cities, was transferred to Crookston. Were yeah. you at his installation or were you in Rome? I was, yeah. I feel like I was we were not all there. there you were I, not there. I, yeah, maybe in Rome. I forgot my suit coat for that. And the guys still give me a hard time. Whenever we go anywhere, they're like, oh, really? did you bring your suit coat? I was like, I brought my suit coat. Because so, I'm sitting <laughs> they, at this very nice, very nice breakfast. Everybody's very dressed up. It's before the ordination. We're like, somehow got into this thing. And, they're like, where's your suit going? I was like, I forgot. So, <laughs> I'm sure there were a few crooks and priests not in this. No, suit this coat. is your uh, original. Uh, oh, the original ordination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The ordination yeah. of the Twin Cities. I had my yeah. suit coat, but nobody could see it because we were bundled up at the Crookston installation. <laughs> yeah. It was a we blizzard. Had a blizzard. We had a blizzard, and a lot of people almost died on the way there. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, the Twin Cities have a cathedral and a basilica. Is that right? Yeah. Or two basilicae? Well, no, the cathedral and the co-cathedral. We have a cathedral and a co-cathedral. So it's like Redeemer and co-redemptrix. They're not equal. One is the, uh, the nice co-cathedral is, is in Minneapolis, but it's a beautiful church, yeah. Both of them built at the same time by Archbishop Ireland. Okay, yeah. There was an Irish identity. Was it a lot of Irish and German Catholics up there? St. Paul was Irish. Minneapolis was Norwegian Lutheran. Although right. a lot of Catholic parishes in Minneapolis, but the uh, you know those would be more the Germans, and the Germans were up in northern Minnesota, my area too. Okay, the, Lu- of, the Lutrans, like well, your there's family. so many Lutrans. Yeah, my mom's side is all Lutrans, and uh, a lot of the Swedes. That's in, also in my dad's family. But I I've wondered because I've been so impressed by these uh, the kind of grandeur of the um, St. Paul Minneapolis Minneapolis St. Paul. I don't know which one you. We prefer. say St. Paul first because he's a saint. Oh, I see. Okay. It's just the airport. Biased. I was born in Golden Valley, Minneapolis. So I say <laughs> Minneapolis, St. Paul. <laughs> um, but the, the, the grandeur, I always wondered if it was um, like the Catholic identity was galvanized by being in the midst of this largely Protestant environment. So you, you often see, you know, a lot more support and that identity strengthen. And I think so. And you had a visionary archbishop in Archbishop Ireland who really wanted to be a cardinal, and he mm. thought if he built big churches, it might happen. <laughs> okay, there we go. But he was visionary. It's a good and combo. He, he, did, he, did, he was a huge builder, and, uh, and so you, you have to give him credit for that. One of my favorite um, pieces of American Catholic architecture has to do with an, a Eucharistic Congress. Mm-hmm. It's at Mundelein, and mm-hmm. it's this kind of arched, what would you call it, promenade or something around the lake yes. to welcome the barge on which the, uh, the Eucharist, the oh, Blessed really? Sacrament, was processed, maybe at the beginning of the... Yeah, so Congress? those arms very much imitating St. Peter's Basilica oh, yeah, and the arms right. that came on around St. Peter's Square, built by Cardinal Mundelein for the 1926 International Eucharistic Congress, still probably one of the largest gatherings of Catholics in the United States mm. history, we're really trying to imitate this, by the way, with our own National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis. But he was convinced the Pope was going to come. Oh. And, uh, but the story was that he, uh, he, he tried to, to get the statue of the Immaculate Conception that's in the square by the Spanish Steps. He tried to buy it for his, nice. for his plaza, and the Pope found out about it, and it, he canceled the deal. And so there was a little bit of a rift between Cardinal Mundelein and the Pope, oh. and so the Pope never came to the oh, Eucharistic Congress. So Cardinal Mundelein himself Rome. had to, he had himself had to escort the Blessed Sacrament on the boat across the lake into the arms. Though, but so what you're saying you're saying is that your your bid on trying to get the Spanish Steps into Crookston is probably not going to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's yeah. not going to go. 
Uh, well, wait, before we go to I got before we go to the topic, we got I got a I got oh, a question that's a non sequitur. That's good, and I got a non sequitur also. Okay, okay. good. Right, so we're you gonna me. you go first. Do, paper, rock, scissors. Okay, um, I, I want to know: Are the aurora borealis up in your diocese? Have you ever seen the northern lights? I love it, and I'm so curious. And I would move over if my bishop would let me. Absolutely, and certain times of year you can see them. I've been in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota, lying on my back at night, and the, it's not just northern lights. They're coming from all corners no. of the sky, and it's like a fireworks show no. with all the colors, yeah. Certain times of year, and the, and the temperatures are just right, and the, and the, the suns are ju- just right, it, it's an amazing phenomenon mm. in northern Minnesota. you got to come. there has never been a place that I've ever been to. I've been to a lot of places where there's not something particular and exceptionally beautiful about that place. I don't know why that works in, it's got to work place. in Providence, every yeah. single place. Yeah. And unique, you know? Yeah. I just wanted to say, my question is not as cool as yours, but I just, this isn't as much of a question as it is just a, an explanation to our friendship with you and um, our gratitude to yeah, you. Right. Uh, when Mike and I uh, and Father Matt Book and Father Brian Larkin, as young seminarians, founded the um, Companions in Denver, uh, we never could have done it without the support of, obviously, the St. Paul guests, but especially at the time, Father Cousins, who uh, rallied all the troops one summer. Uh, <laughs> this right. is probably 2008. I think we met in 2007 or 2006, maybe it was 2007, somewhere in there. Yeah. And he was working in the seminary at the time, and he got all his guys, and he invited all of us up, and we went with Monsignor Glenn, uh, our rector, and we got these scampers the, how do you describe the scan it's just like a funny little trailers they were campers little they were campers. Like rvs a little is that RVs. a brand name the scamper that's scamper is it, one of them the scamper smaller but yeah, RVs, little, yeah little rvs it little, was awesome and small it was so great and <laughs> we stayed at a campground outside of the kelly's farm and then we worked on the farm and we stayed there for two weeks and we had conferences and holy hours and some labor and just boot camp some, the companions boot, we of called Christ it the boot, boot camp. camp yeah what a blessed time, man. So we did a, uh, a boot camp. It wasn't as great as that one with our young guys uh, this summer. And uh, we were thinking of you and grateful to you. And so he's here. We got our board meeting this weekend, and the bishop has been just the best to us. So we want to thank you for that. So, yeah, Father Cousins also, I don't want to embarrass you, but this is a show of his humility and holiness. And it's very memorable for me. But at my diaconate ordination, <laughs> he was in the basement of the companion's house, Bailing Mopping out water yep. that had flooded <laughs> that very morning. Every cleric that. Sonny, your pants were rolled up in your. They were just with a flooded basement. Everybody that was a went mess. to work. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. I do remember that. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for all your help in um, not only helping us found the companions here, but also just supporting us through the years. Um, Bishop Cousins is a very prayerful man, so I am um, certain that you've been praying for us, and then of course with your wisdom and guidance. It's a privilege. And, he, and he's also taken on uh, a new role, uh, not in addition to being the Bishop of Crookston. Uh, the USCCB has elected him to head up the uh, Eucharistic Revival and the upcoming Eucharistic Congress. And so that's our topic for this evening. Yeah. Uh, so we want to start by just asking you uh, questions. So somebody's listening to this and they're saying, I, I haven't heard anything about this. So what, what's going on? What was this about? Yeah, so uh, in case you haven't heard, the bishops are doing a revival. And, uh, yeah, riverboat? Uh, yeah, yep. <laughs> And uh, so it all started back in 2019 when the Pew study came out, and it seemed to say that only 30% of Catholics believed in the real presence. Bishop Barron was the head of the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis at that time, which now I'm the chair of. And he had this idea that maybe we should try to do some kind of national Eucharistic initiative. And so he got some of the committee chairs from the USCCB together to meet in January and February of 2020. 
I was at those meetings because I was the chair-elect for the committee. And we were talking already about maybe some kind of multi-year program that would help to highlight Eucharistic belief amongst Catholics. And then, of course, in March of 2020, the world shut down yeah. because of COVID. We didn't know that was coming. So we didn't actually get to bring it to the bishops until November of 2020 when that was the next meeting. And that's when we started basically to kind of get approval for the bishops for what a multi-year national Eucharistic revival might look like. And then I was took over as committee chair, so I was charged with building it and implementing it. So I spent all of 2021 building it, really consulting with evangelistic leaders around the country. And that's where we decided we, we, we didn't just need like a, another program that we'd kind of run through every parish, but we really wanted to start a revival. And that was to invite everybody who loves the Eucharist to, to focus on the Eucharist for a few years in the whole United States Church and actually to hold this up as really important for who we are. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that's a really important thing to do right now. But it's, you know, it's not just, it's certainly, we have, you know, the USCCB has a planning committee and we're, you know, producing ideas and we're sharing those with diocesan point persons. And if you are in a parish, we're going to have a parish year of this revival next year. So we're doing all that kind of programmatic stuff. But more importantly, we've been just inviting people who love the Eucharist to express that love and to begin to think about how do we evangelize about that love. I love that focus on um, the programmatic serves the the evangelical nature of this. This is really about evangelization and about kind of rebuilding uh, a culture, a Eucharistic culture within the church. It's not just kind of the next thing, so to speak, coming out of, you know, some kind of bureaucracy or something, but it's at the service of that. Yeah. Early on, uh, I read... Somebody sent me, I was working on this project, and somebody sent me Pope Leo XIII's encyclical on the Eucharist, Mire Caritatis, 1902. Yeah. So remember Pope Leo's the one who has this kind of vision about the 20th century, that the enemy's going to have all kinds of power in the 20th century, and that the church needs to be strengthened against this work of the enemy. So he has, he's the one who asks that every, after every Mass, the prayer of St. Michael be prayed. And he writes, and he says, as I come to the end of my life, he realizes he was, and he wrote this like, two years before he died. Mm. He said, you could imagine I might want to focus on lots of things. There's lots of errors. There's lots of problems in the world. But he said, I actually want to focus on the Eucharist because it's the heart of the church. And the church needs to be strengthened in her heart to stand against what's coming mm. in the culture. And uh, as soon as I read that, I thought, oh, that's why the Holy Spirit wants a Eucharist to revive in the United mm. States right now, is really, you know, it's it's this paradigm that I talk about a lot, relationship, identity, mission, which a lot of people talk about, this idea that our first thing in life and the most important thing, what reveals to us who we are is our relationships. First, our relationship with God, relationship with others. And if we live that well, we know who we are, and then we know what we should do. And I think that's what the Eucharist does for the church. Like, if we are living well a Eucharistic life, we're living our relationship with Jesus. And then we know who we are. And then we're ready to be who we are for the sake of the world. So everybody knows the U.S. Church has to make this missionary conversion. Yeah. We just have to do it or because the culture is, is desperately in need of it. And to me, this is kind of like that very center core foundation for that missionary conversion. Be strengthened in who we are in the Eucharist. And then as people encounter him in the Eucharist, then they're going to be set on fire for a mission. Is Eucharistic revival a term that has been used uh, around past? Because I know like Eucharistic congresses, we were just talking about the one in, in the 40s earlier at dinner uh, in the 20s. But could you talk a little bit about the, the language of the Congress and what that is? And then also like what 
is this a different kind of language and approach with the language of re- revival? I, I think it is a difference with the language of revival. You know, some people thought we should call it Eucharistic renewal, but we really settled on the term revival because the revival is a work of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And, you know, we're familiar with the American tradition of revivals, but of course, they're, they're, you go to the Old Testament, you find a lot of revivals, moments, moments when mm-hmm. people were called back to faithfulness to the covenant and faithfulness to worship, the rebuilding of the temple by Ezra. Like, this is a revival, yeah. right? Or Pentecost. Pentecost is a revival, right? The church gets together with Our Lady, asks God to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and it changes things, and it actually empowers things. And in a revival, you know, a revival is a work of God. And so really our job, I think, is to pray for that revival. But what's been beautiful for me to see is how many people want to be involved in it, right? And that's the sign to me that there's a revival happening, is that all the different apostolates that are coming forward, people volunteering, people who understand the importance of the Eucharist, and understand how if we as a church have lost that, we've lost everything. Yeah. And so they want to see us be strengthened here. Now, we do have a kind of program to it, and so the high point will be this National Eucharistic Congress in the summer of 2024. So July 17 to 21, 2024 in Indianapolis. And that, you know, even that was a, that was a big idea to bring to the bishops, I remember. <laughs> You know, because bishops had to vote on this, you know, and I was, you know, we've done, you know, in the USCCB, say in the past 10 years, like we had the Quinto Encuentro. So there's 5,000 people. It's a leaders event, you know. But we actually said, no, what we need is a gathering of the church. And we need that for, for the sake of the unity of the church and for the sake of setting the church on fire for a mission, you know. And so a lot of people said in our consultations, this needs to be more like World Youth Day than a, a conference for leaders, mm-hmm. you know? And so we painted that vision for the bishops, not knowing where it would go. And I remember I was at the USCCB, and, you know, we have to vote on these things. Everybody has a little clicker. Everyone's got the little button that they press for voting. And so I'm up on the, the stage, and I'm with the Archbishop of Indianapolis, who's up there with me, and we're saying, let's do this. And then I realized, I don't have my clicker. <laughs> so, oh, I turned to Archbishop Thompson, like, you got your clicker? He's like, no, mine's in my chair. And I'm like, down. We're down two votes. This thing might not yeah, pass. Man, yeah. Vote twice. Well, then they took the vote, and it was, it was like 204 to 12 Wow. in yeah. favor of doing it. So over Praise 90% God. of the bishops that's great. said, let's do this. And to me, that's the kind of power of the Holy Spirit behind it. That's What's, um, I have a few questions uh, yeah. and an observation. So as a... A language guy. I love words. Um, I'm kind of a lexicographer of sorts. And so that connection between revival language, which you, you've, you've described as um, a gathering of people, that kind of renewal of enthusiasm and the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, but also with the, the, the language of the heart of mm-hmm. the church, that revival means bring back to life or right. um, bring, bring life where it's kind of wearing out. And that's certainly uh, something I've seen in the church is in the wake of scandals in mm-hmm. this kind of emptying out with secularism. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are discouraged. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel that often. It's kind of like the, the heartbeat is uh, slowing down. And right. you do see um, kind of illness and worn out and death even in ways. And um, so the, the idea of reviving the heart I mean, it's just so visceral. That image for me is that that mm-hmm. hot blood running through the church and mm-hmm. uh, bringing to life. You can say you look alive. 
you know, the opposite of looking worn out or pallid, you know. Right. And I think that's one of the things when people ask me, I've been saying, is that uh, the revival has to begin in your heart. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I told the bishops that when we started this, like the revival has to begin in your heart. And uh, it's going to be through us coming to life in our own relationship with the Lord Mm -hmm. in the Eucharist that then this revival begins to spread. But I do think there's something inspiring for people to say, oh my gosh, the bishops are doing a big thing. And, you know, we're going to have a national Eucharistic pilgrimage that leads to this National Eucharistic Congress. So we're, we're going to walk across the country with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament from four places. We're going to start in San Francisco at the cathedral. We're going to start at the tomb of Blessed Michael McGivney at the Knights of Columbus headquarters in Connecticut. And mm. we're going to start at the border in Brownsville, Texas. And then, of course, at Lake Itasca State Park in, oh, yeah. <laughs> Crookston. in the Crookston Diocese. Which is the headwaters. The headwaters of the, the Mississippi, Mississippi River. It's where the Mississippi River begins. And you told me that river used to be called? The River of the Immaculate Conception, as yeah, it was first beautiful. named by the Franciscan missionaries. The name didn't stick, but... So who... Um, I'm very interested in processions. I yes. love it. And pilgrimages. So who comes along, and then how do you get lodging? And are he you wants supposed to know to how a, does he get signed up. you bring a tent and a bike, or... Well, we need priest chaplains. So we're going to ask priest chaplains to sign up for a week. You know, we're going to have two priests with each of these pilgrimages. So that's, you know, eight priests on pilgrimage at all time for this. And you can sign up for a week to, to, to walk along. Tell me the dates again. Uh, it's going to start May 18, 2024. And they're all going to end July 17 in Minneapolis, or in Indianapolis. In so Indiana. three months. Okay. And, was this uh, your idea? It was mine and a few other people. Oh, it's so awesome. That's just so <laughs> why, cool. And why Indianapolis? Just because it's central? And so we, we, we put out bids for where, where where can you do an event for eighty to 100,000 people, and we had to get an NFL stadium. And so it was all about dates and what cities are available. And Indianapolis is kind of the perfect convention city. It's, it's the within biggest a, convention center, I think. Yeah, and it's is within it? a day's drive of half of the United States population. So yeah. we wanted it to – it's a great place to start. But we don't expect this to be the last National Eucharistic Congress. This is number 10. And we expect to keep going after this and begin to move it around the country. But um, it's also centrally located, so it makes right. a nice cross when we right, walk across right, the right. country. But we're going to invite young people to sign up to be pilgrims. So we'll have 12 official pilgrims with each of these pilgrimages. And those, they'll stay in churches every night. Uh, they'll, be, they'll be put up by host homes. They'll do programs in parishes. You know, we'll have mass, and then we'll start out, and we'll invite the whole parish to walk the first mile with us. And then the, the pilgrims will keep going for that day. They'll do, you know, 10, 12, 15 miles on a good day. And, uh, you know, we'll have accompaniment vans and we'll have RVs for all the needs, all those things that will go along with the group. Anyone can walk. We're going to provide housing and, and lodging for the key pilgrims and the priests who walk along with them. But do a day, you know, if you're a pastor of a parish. Absolutely. You know, bring your parish out there and walk for a day with everybody. Exactly. You know, go out and then walk back to your town or your parish yep. or, you know, leave from there. But I'm sure you'll be passing through towns where this is, you know, it's very possible oh, yeah. to get everybody out there. Yeah. I'm going to do the first week myself. I'm just going to walk for a week. Yeah, we so got to find out when Denver is, right? I, let's it's do the Rock, right Rocky through. Mountains, right? Does it go right it's through? It's coming right through Vail oh, Pass. Yes. Oh, yeah. We, They're we'll going to do the bike, pa- bike trath over Vail Pass. Sign us up for Vail Pass. Let's go. Let's go, Mikey. <laughs> and then we get T-shirts, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> or oh, yeah. lapel pins. I saw yeah. you had a lapel pin. Eucharistic yeah, I knew you were, I knew Did you're, you bring me I one? I knew you were eyeing that lapel pin. <laughs> hey, we, <laughs> gonna, we got the merch. It's coming up on the website soon. Here we soon. go. Let's go. <laughs> hey, okay, let's, uh, can we circle back real quick? Well, let me ask just 
to the definition of Congress. Oh, sorry. Co Congress, it sounded the way that you described it, like a World Youth Day, everybody come. Um, but then the word Congress, to me, sounds like elected yeah, people, so, leaders, who are going to represent the rest of us. So yeah, who's so that, there? It's a very interesting question, because you've had a development in the history of Congress. So Eucharistic Congress, Congresses started in the late 1800s, um, and uh, Pope Leo XIII speaks about them in his encyclical and how pleased he is that they're going. And early on, they tended to be, you know, like, yeah, like you send delegates to a congress, and you would have papers given about the Eucharist by bishops and priests, and they were mainly an event for bishops and priests to study about their love for the Eucharist. Mm. But um, right around the turn of the century, you started to get people who had a bigger idea, and so in, here in the United States, you know, right around the turn of the century, the first big one, I think, was in Cleveland. And they just said, well, anybody who wants to come can come. And they were, they were shocked when like 20,000 or 30,000 people showed up. And people they had love to, the Eucharist. And they had to rent a stadium. And then they got Cincinnati and then New Orleans. And, then, and we were getting you know, 40, 50, 100,000. I think New Orleans was a couple hundred thousand. And then we had the International Eucharistic Congress in Chicago, 1926. And that was almost a million people. And then they, they just kind of exploded from there. So the last one was a couple hundred thousand people in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1941. Mm. And interesting. That was the last time they had one. A national Eucharistic Congress. Okay. Uh, interesting because the man who became Pope Pius XII, Eugenio Pacelli, was the Pope's representative there mm. at that Congress. And then we had an international Eucharistic Congress in 1976 in Philadelphia. That's where the whole world comes together. And you might remember, those are going on still every five years. They've been going on since the late 1800s, every five years. The last one was in Hungary. There's one in Quito, Ecuador in fall of 2024. Mm -hmm. So, um, But interesting, in the 1976, there was a guy named Karol Wojtyla, who was a cardinal from Poland, who represented Poland, oh. who then, of course, of two him. years later became John Paul II. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, are you finished on that? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry lexi to cut you lexological off. or whatever you call it. So. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite, I teach ecclesiology, as you know. One of my mm -hmm. favorite books is uh, Under de Lubach's Splendor of the Church, and Love I couldn't it. help but grab chapter four. In uh, his, This is a, a book that was written in the 1950s by a Jesuit named Under de Lubach, uh, cardinal by John Paul II. Um, he wrote this book while he was silenced by the Jesuits. Right. And he talks about the beauty of the church, and he writes about obedience, and it's just absolutely compelling and and. Chapter four of it is called The Heart of the Church, and it's about the Eucharist. Yes. And what I love about it is I think that the Eucharistic, the notion of the Eucharist as the heart of the church is connected to the French school of spirituality and the development of the spirituality of the sacred heart of Jesus. Yes. So he quotes this guy, Olier, um, who's one of the founders of the school. Um, and this is the first time I had kind of read something of it, but before he quotes Augustine. So I'll just read this here very briefly because it's, it's beautiful. So this first part is Augustine, then the end is the Frenchman Olier. It is in the Eucharist that the mysterious essence of the church receives a perfect expression. Mm -hmm. And likewise, it is in the church's Catholic unity that the hidden significance of the Eucharist produces the fruit of effective results. For the virtue that is there understood is unity, that built into his body, this is Augustine, made members of him, we may be what we receive. And then lastly, Olier here. If the church is thus the fullness of Christ, Christ in his Eucharist is truly the heart of the church. There's a lot to unpack there. Right, but um, you, th you think of the vine and the branches, right? Like this is, the heart is what pumps the blood to the body of Christ and, and makes us the body of Christ. Absolutely. And so when we, when we talk about revival, reviv revivification here, it's like we're going right to the heart. 
Mm-hmm. And we're saying the heart is dying. I mean, as you were talking about earlier, like for those of us who were in the parish during COVID, it was a zombie apocalypse. I mean, it was just, and, and then the heartbreak of not seeing, of seeing people not come back. And yep. I think there is a lot of return now. It's like building, but man, what a perfect time for reviving the heart of the church uh, after COVID. I mean, the, the timing of everything is so providential and beautiful. So. And then, yeah, re- rebuilding it for the mission. I, you had a cool quote from uh, Teresa of Avila mm-hmm. in a little video I watched about um, being the Lord's limbs and eyes mm-hmm. and, and ears in the world, something like this, that the mystical body is fueled by the Eucharist, mm-hmm. built by the Eucharist. You know? Yeah, this, you know, if, if the Eucharist is the place where our identity is revealed, it reveals two things, right? That we are the body of Christ. That's what we become through receiving the Eucharist, which means, yeah, that I am called to be Christ. So I, he has no other hands but my hands. He has no other feet but my That's feet, it, Teresa yeah. of Avila says. But we're also the bride of Christ, right? This is, the church is the bride for which Jesus laid down his life, which, of course, tells us something about our own dignity and how much we're loved. That's the security that's going to allow us to stand in the midst of, of you know, whatever cultural people and, and the missionary heart that we need. Mm. So going into that bridal aspect for a second, I know it's something we've talked about a lot because you taught Mariology for a number of years, and I just basically took all your lecture notes and uh, <laughs> trying to Teach the plagiarize it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the, you know, when we talk about the church, what is she? Fundamentally a mystery, a mystery of communion. Um, and then the two analogs that Paul gives us is body and bride. And in many ways, you could see that as Eucharistic and Marian. Uh, you think of the mm-hmm. 19th century St. John Bosco's vision of the church, the bark, and then the two pillars kind of holding it in line are mm-hmm. Mary and the Eucharist. So could you just talk a little bit about how you see Mary uh, involved in maybe opening our hearts to a deeper Eucharistic revival? Yeah, of course, as St. John Paul II says, Mary is the woman of the Eucharist, right? Because she's the first one to surrender her life to Jesus, coming into her in this way. In fact, John Paul II has that line where he says, I wonder when she received communion after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, if it was reminded her of the incarnation, you know, wow. uh, what it was like in the moments when Jesus came and lived in her womb. But she, she becomes for us the model of this complete openness to what Jesus wants of me, which is really uh, what the, the surrender of the Eucharist is about, right? It's this mutual giving that Jesus gives himself to me, and he asks me to be ready to surrender my whole life to him, right? So she becomes for us the, the kind of ultimate model of that, and in that way also kind of the heart of the church as she teaches us that both the receptivity, but then also the self-giving. That's beautiful, and I, there's a lot in that. I think that oftentimes we approach the Eucharist as kind of an object. It's something that we receive, and we re- it's an instrument of grace. But thinking of the Eucharist, as you just described it, as Christ's posture towards the Father of self-surrender. Right. And the way that Mary's fiat as openness is also a total surrender. So there's this kind of deep I- intimacy and kind of union between how Mary's Mary's Yes, her fiat at the incarnation is a is almost a Eucharistic self gift that then opens up the full total revelation of God uh, in the in the humanity of Christ. So, a lot in there. I, yeah. I love that. Here so, is my body. Yeah. Take it, receive it, given up for you. I, which Mary says when she says fiat. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, I mean it really is profound, and it's it's an image of what um, the conformity to Christ looks like uh, for each of our lives, right? 
it's uh, exemplary in that way, what we're being transformed into through the Eucharist. And I think this is really the deeper um, reality that someone comes to understand when they begin to live a Eucharistic life. And, you know, it's one of the beauties of, of the priesthood, of course, is that you just, you, you, you live so close to the Eucharist. Right. And your whole being is really tied to the Eucharist. John Paul II says, I was ordained a servant of the Eucharist, you know. Mm. And, uh, and then you start to, like, understand what he also says, which is the Eucharist is the secret of my day. It gives meaning to my existence, mm. right? So you start to understand, like, okay, there's a way of this self-giving that I'm experiencing here day in, day out that is now forming my heart in a way of just being given for the Father, just as Jesus is in the Eucharist. And I, I think the people, this is why, you know, you, you see like a Mother Teresa or the saints as they come to live so close to the Eucharist, how it, 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 they become one with Christ in their self-giving, you know? So it, it, there really is this connection that Mother Teresa always said, like, you can't love Jesus in the poor if you don't love Jesus in the Eucharist, because you, you won't really understand the self-giving that's necessary. And she'll say you can't love Jesus in the Eucharist if you don't love Jesus in the poor as well, that there's this kind of complementarity to it. I, I think that the... Um you know, we've been so privileged to be priests and to celebrate the Eucharist daily and to see it as the high point of our day, as it says in the rule. The central, Eucharistic, the central Eucharistic act of our, adoration as well. And then, yeah, the Holy Hour, um, which is something that, you know, has just become so central to the life of those of us who have been formed and are being formed to be priests. Um, I wonder also if this Eucharistic revival is a way of helping people move out of the scandal uh, in the hierarchy and in the priesthood mm -hmm. because a lot of times I think what's happened is you know there's this modern mentality that the church is a hierarchy which means it's just this kind of antiquated uh, structure run by men and it, there's corruption and you bring in the kind of Marxist postmodern Marxist critique and all of a sudden this thing gets really violent and it's kind of like we're not saying the hierarchy shouldn't exist or that it should be uh, mutilated and have different kind of forms to it or, or just redone and become democratic. What we're saying is just like, let's all focus on the heart of the church here. Right. Um, and understand, and then you understand the priesthood in light of the Eucharist, um, instead of the, just looking at everything from this kind of institutional structure. I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. But this leader in the church who's telling you what to do. Yeah. Uh, the leader in the church who's telling you what to do is Jesus. Right. <laughs> and we try to, we try not to distract his voice through ours. And, uh, but there's something so, obviously, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, they're present to us. And it's, it's also a mystery of faith. I mean, it, it's, Jesus leaves himself up to, in the way that he manifests himself, to doubt because he's so simple. And it's, it, it, that, that blows my mind. If he wanted to, he could have done, like, appearing in a UFO alien spaceship every time that he wants to be present. But a little piece of bread, and, and in a monstrance, I often am just so grateful for the simplicity of that. But um, it was simple, both in an inviting way for this trust, and, and also like a challenging way of, do you believe, do you trust in the simplicity of this fragility? Yeah. It does, it connects also to the scandal of the incarnation, which is that God would come so close to us in such a humble, simple way. It's actually kind of scandalous. It's like, it, it's, it's too close, you know, and it's too much. And that's actually part of, of the overwhelming sense of the Lord's love. Like, no, I, I'm, I'm actually going to give myself to you in this overwhelming way, but it, it's so simple.
Yeah. The incarnation is, is scandalous because uh, God comes to us through mediation. Mm-hmm. And mediation is something we love. The incarnation is a mediatory act. The church is a mediation. The Eucharist is a mediation. And we, we don't think of that as problematic, like we get in a fight and bishop has to mediate. It's. I was telling my guys today in class, it's like mediation is like when one child in a family is sick and maybe really sick and the parents have to just pour in more attention. Mm. This is what happens after the fall is mediation is just like God the Father, just the whole Trinity just pouring into us all the way down to, like as you said, this tiny sacramental presence, which we've all just known uh, is just you can't live without. I remember Father Peter Williams, your good friend, said, I just, he's just like, I, I just can't not be around it. Like when I travel, mm-hmm. I just have to be with the Eucharist. And, and just, you can't explain that to people. Well, uh, and if you. If but we you want to communicate that in this revival. The, the COVID, <clears throat> I really saw two sides. One was mm-hmm. people just you know, who were flaky, or I don't know, I don't want to be too judgy about that. Um, but there were a lot of people who just kind of drifted. And. On the other hand, there were people who were feisty in defending. Like yeah. they were going to, you know, knock down the doors of the church and break every rule of, you know, that was coming down from, you know, the voices of media and government in order to get the Eucharist because that's their yeah. lifeblood, you know. And yeah. that's they, they would sacrifice anything. It was beautiful to see that kind of martyrdom at that moment. It was in. I remember being in the midst of that, and of course being a bishop and like having to make these tough decisions about what we're going to do and fighting to get our churches open you know and we actually in minnesota we had to we had to take a stand at all the bishops of minnesota together took mm-hmm. a stand against the governor and, and said i'm sorry but you don't have a right to tell us not to open our churches and we're going to open them and here's the day we're going to do it you know because he was kept pu- pushing us out and pushing us out but um what i remember was as you know i have a bishop and i have a staff of people and there's attorneys and all these other people who are like ah you know don't be too strong and but as the pastor i was like no, no, we have to push, you know, because I could feel the pain of the people. Mm. And it was really the pastor's heart versus the bureaucratic heart that said, we have to do this. Yeah, you know? that's beautiful. Um, did you have any other big questions? I want to do talk practicals at the end here. That was my only question. Okay. How can I prepare myself? Yeah, so for... let's start with that. That's Go ahead. Yeah, just like, what do you have suggestions about ways that I might pray? Should I accompany Our Lady and, and ask her to help, like, guide me in this? Uh, invite the Holy Spirit. And then one kind of point of advice that I appreciated in a talk I listened to, uh, you you gave examples of relating the scriptures to um, the Eucharistic prayers. So something like adoration uh, accompanied by a Lexio Divina of sorts. You know, this is my body given up for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I I hand over to you what I I first received. Mm -hmm. all, All of these different scriptural references to the Eucharist can help sort of guide a meditation. But I'm sure there's lots of, even the idea of Eucharistic adoration. Yeah, so um, one thing is go to our website, eucharisticrevival.org. Oh, that's right. Eucharisticrevival.org. Eucharisticrevival.org. Or eucharisticcongress.org. Um, so Eucharistic Revival, the revival is the three-year movement that starts with this diocesan year, second year is the parish year, and the third year is the missionary year. And so we're right in the middle of the diocesan year, this first year of this three-year revival. And that website has incredible resources for everything. So we have a learn platform. It's all kinds of videos, courses. There's a course I taught on there. There's other courses people have taught on the Eucharist. There's meditations. 
There's pl- things that can help you to lead in your prayer. You're going to want to sign up for become a, a to, for our weekly newsletter, Heart of the Revival. And every week that has meditations to help your prayer mm. as you're trying to enter into this revival. Plus it has practical news about what we're doing in the revival, events that are happening around the country, all those things. So go to EucharisticRevival.org and sign up for the Heart of the Revival newsletter. That's EucharisticRevival.org? That's right. <laughs> and then the other one is uh, you can sign up there to become a Eucharistic missionary. We're just beginning to, to launch this Eucharistic mm. missionary movement. These are people who we want to engage in the parish year to be able to lead small groups, to be able to have adoration nights, to be able to, to invite people into adoration or back to mass or back to confession, you know. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a whole com- campaign during the parish year of invite someone back, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we have a parish playbook that's coming out that will give details for parishes. Diocesan point persons in every diocese, we have a point person and they're being asked right now to appoint parish point persons, and we're going to train those parish point persons. And in the fall, we're going to have really simple plug-and-play small groups. So we've been working with great producers. I'm going to be doing some video for that in Denver. That's why I'm here. Yep. And we're going to produce these small groups that will be super simple. You can do it around your kitchen table. You can do it around a table in your church basement. You can have your parents do it while the kids are at RE. And these small groups are going to be charismatic and focused on the Eucharist. Really an opportunity for people to share faith around who is Jesus and why the Eucharist makes a difference for me. So it's a great tool, and we'll be training people how to use that tool um, through through the website. So you can find out all this information on the website. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And this well is done. something that's been kicked off already? Yeah, so the, the, right, the, the parish point persons are just, we just asked them that they be appointed, and they'll be registering and then they'll be training for them throughout the spring. Okay. And the launch of the parish year begins uh, on Corpus Christi. In June. And it goes for, for the whole next year. Wonderful. And that ends with the National Eucharistic Congress. And then, but then that's just the beginning of the missionary sending year. So the last year is really our attempt to mobilize these Eucharistic missionaries. 100,000 of them, we hope, have come to Indianapolis. And just begin to give them practical tools to how do you begin to actually share your faith beyond the borders of your of your That's parish? Great. Yeah. So we hope to create a movement that will continue into the future of helping the U.S. Church make that missionary conversion we, we desperately have to do. And they also uh, need support, and not just spiritually, but uh, financial support. There's a donate button on there I saw. So Yes, uh, go, go and make a big donation. Out. Yeah, they... <laughs> It's not going to be cheap to walk the Blessed Sacrament across the country, but it's going to be worth doing. This is also on EucharisticRevival.org. You got it, Mikey. You got it. Well, Bishop, uh, man, this is exciting. This is great work, and we're so happy that in a small way we can support it with this podcast, and we hope that our listeners will uh, go to eucharisticrevival.org you got it okay at the end of each podcast (laughs) we do shout outs all right so yes so do you have any shout outs you'd like to give uh i need to think about that okay i'm unprepared here's one how about your executive director yeah tim gumkowski he's the executive director for the national congress yep yep and conde de leon the best fundraiser in the church he's our he's our advancement director and then that's very fresh yeah except he's a latino but <laughs> you're cool too. But, uh, and we have an incredible staff. You know, Maggie Lennon, Dana, Dana Frerichs. They're working really hard on this. Now we're a small team. Uh, they're all kind of well, maybe not all millennials, but they're all younger than me. You know, and w- we were sitting in a basement just a couple of weeks ago of a of a, of a uh, house in Denver. You know, an Airbnb. Uh-huh. And here we are planning the na- the largest event in the na- in the 
Catholic Church in the in the decade, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. and it's all of us millennials in the basement of an Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I know this is going to work. Yeah. I know it's going to work. Uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> Working on apps and everything. That's right. I'd like to give a shout out to Kelsey Gunkel, who uh, works for the Archdiocese here. She's a web designer and uh, helped us out a ton. I have uh, been basically asked to revamp all of the communications here. So we have a new website, sjvdenver.edu. So you can go. Forget that one and go to eucharisticrevival.org. Exactly. This one doesn't matter, but uh, she's just awesome and she listens to the podcast. And so, Kelsey, thanks for all your work. We really appreciate it. And I want to shout out, um, actually, maybe ask for prayers for. the pastor that I grew up with, Michael Walsh, rest in peace. Okay. Father Michael uh, brought perpetual adoration to our parish, and it changed the parish. It revived the parish. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that 24 hours, seven days a week, there were people there in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And there was a little little chapel built, and the parish organized so that uh, there were always two people, and uh, for every hour. And I spent a lot of time in there. In, High school when I was, you know, getting in trouble and then going to confession and going to adoration and trying to figure out life. He gave me first communion also at St. Thomas More. So yeah, Father Michael Walsh. If he would have pulled us out of the crowd, I don't know if he would have said those are the guys who could be priests. No, no. Yeah, and and really, um, all the priests who um, yeah would offered their lives to service of the Eucharist and who brought us that that gift um, from God and finally. For uh, my parents, Vic and Nancy Rapp, who have had an hour of adoration every week and are uh, great examples of uh, just the power of that um, devotion. That's beautiful. Yeah, the man who taught me to love the Eucharist was Monsignor Thomas Berry, who was a priest of the Archdiocese of Denver, ordained in 1938. Oh, wow. Irishman, off the boat Irish. And... Uh, taught me how to serve and I have a very distinct memory of him teaching me to genuflect and what it meant to genuflect wow. and the reverence with which he celebrated the mass which profoundly influenced my vocation and I, I, I have his chalice which he gave me when I was ordained a priest that's beautiful well gents we gotta get the, this guy to go to so bed he's got a big day with the Augustine Institute tomorrow it's all downhill from here you know Catholic stuff hey. and then these other groups so no just yes, joking thank you for so uh, Symbolon there's gonna be some great resources coming but just go to the website no, I'm not saying it okay, again. Okay, EucharisticRevival.org, <laughs> and then uh, CatholicStuffPodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions for us, uh, even about Bishop Cousins, we can get you in touch with his team uh, and uh, sign us up for Vail Pass. All right? We're yeah. on it. So Thanks so much, Thanks man. so much for being with us. Thanks, God bless Bishop, you. God bless you. Uh, for your friendship and support all, all, all through the years, and especially for this great work. Praise God. We'll God see you next week. Take care.